You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. So if you have your Bible, Matthew 24 is where we find ourselves this evening. And you can be turning in your Bibles to that chapter. Matthew chapter 24 is where we find ourselves. And we are going to be making our way through part of chapter 24 this evening. And really, what is the first of two messages that are going to span both Matthew 24 and 25 as we look here at what is known as the Olivet Discourse here in the Scriptures. And so if you are taking notes tonight, the simple title for this study is the Olivet Discourse, Part 1. The Olivet Discourse, Part 1, because that's what it is. And next week will be Part 2. If you want to go ahead and get a page ready for that, you can do that and you'll be, a, you'll be ahead of the game. But it's been a few weeks since we've been together. And if you'll remember, Matthew was written by a man named Matthew. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a Jewish man. And he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, this Gospel here, to the Jews to show them that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews that they were looking for. That at this time of his writing, that he, they had actually missed as a nation. But yet, Matthew writes this so that they could know who Jesus was, know who he is, in fact, as not only the king of the Jews, but also the king of kings and lord of lords, that he is the savior. He is, as we have been seeing and will continue to see, he is Christ the king. And this is confirmed all through Jesus' ministry, his messages, his miracles, the fulfilled prophecy that we see within the gospel of Matthew that Jesus fulfills. It all points to him being Christ the king. And for us as the church, that's important to know, because as we look and see within the word of God that Jesus is who we believe him to be, well, then we can have all all that more confidence in the faith that we put in him as we seek to follow and serve him and share him with the world around us. And so that is what we see within the Gospel of Matthew. We have seen it in the year that we've been in it, and we'll continue to see it as we get close to the end of it. And tonight, as we move through this text together, tonight and next week, we move through a sermon that was taught by Jesus there directly to his disciples. And it's called the Olivet Discourse simply because he taught it to them there on the Mount of Olives. He taught it to them there as they were walking and and, and living life in this last week of Jesus's physical life on the earth. And as we're going to see tonight, before we get into the sermon, we're going to see here as we open up in the text what prompts this sermon being taught there to his disciples and being recorded for us by Matthew as well as by Luke in his gospel as well. He records a version of this as well that that coincides with it. We see that there is uh, some prediction and some questioning made by Jesus, a conversation really that includes both of those things that prompts this sermon being taught by Jesus to his disciples. And this study will span the next two weeks, and that means there's a lot to cover. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right into it and open up with the first three verses. We're going to read those, we're going to pray, and then we will move forward. So, Matthew 24, verse 1 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all of these things? He said, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming 
and of the end of the age. Let's pray, friends, before we continue on. Father, we thank you so much for this day, so much, God, just for an opportunity to worship you, Lord, together. It's such a good thing, Father, for, for us to come together and just exalt your name and praise you, Lord. I, I just thank you for worship, and I thank you, Lord, for worship amongst these fellow believers, these fellow, these fellow children of yours, God, who desire to know you and desire to worship you. And Lord, as we open up the word now, open up your word now, and, and seek to take some time tonight to read it and to study it and to understand it, God, I pray that you would just be with us and you continue just to help us, Lord, as we seek to know you more and that you would help us to not only know what the word says, but God, know how to live according to it and in light of it, that Father, we may be different in this world as we live for you and seek to follow you. So God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who you've given us to help understand your word. And we ask that right now in this moment that you would help us as we study your scriptures and as we seek to live them out. And we pray this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, like I said, the opening few verses get the ball rolling for us here with this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And this conversation, you'll notice, involves both a prediction that prompts some further questioning from the disciples. Jesus and the disciples, if we'll remember back just a few weeks ago, we covered really over a three-week period of time some conversations that Jesus was having with the religious leaders there in Jerusalem in the temple. And they ended with Jesus speaking rather definitively and harshly, in fact, to the religious leaders as to the state of their hearts, as well as to the state of the way that they were living and conducting ministry. And as they leave there, Matthew records that the disciples, whether they were with Jesus or had left Jesus and were coming back to meet Jesus, that they are sitting there showing Jesus the temple. They're like, hey, look at this amazing structure. Look at the buildings. To which Jesus, we see, issues a response they probably weren't expecting, a response there that involves a prediction. As Jesus answers the disciples in verse 2, that not one of the stones of the temple that they see, that they are pointing out to him, that are so expertly put together, that not one of them will be standing. Every one of them, in fact, will be turned down, will be torn down. We see Jesus here predicting what is the destruction of the temple that they are showing off to Jesus. And this would have no doubt blown the minds of the disciples. We see that it's going to prompt the questioning that we read of in verse 3. But it would have for sure have blown their minds as, we, as, as he said that. Now, it's worth to note before we get to the questioning that's prompt by, prompted by this prediction to understand that this prediction, this prophecy that Jesus issues here and Matthew records for us in the opening of chapter 24, that it is a prophecy, a prediction that has already come to pass. What Jesus here speaks is something that we can look back in history and see that, hey, Jesus was dead on right whenever he made this prediction. You see, just about 40 years past where Jesus is speaking here for you note takers and you Bible students, we have starting in around AD 66, this series of revolutions between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire. 
where the Jews there were tired of the Roman rule in their land. And so they started a series of campaigns and guerrilla warfare so as to get them out of their land. And what we see, if you record and read in histories, we see that this all comes to a head really in 70 AD, where the Roman general by the name of Titus comes and besieges Jerusalem. And it is a siege that lasts for some time, but ultimately ends in Titus overrunning the Jewish, uh, the Jewish resistance, marching into Jerusalem and making a decisive victory over the people that were there. And understand that history records for us that Titus actually, by the, by the command of his, of, his, of, his, uh, of his emperor, was actually not going to destroy the temple right off. Understand that Jesus' prediction that the temple was going to be destroyed, it was carried out, but it wasn't carried out by an order of Titus. It was in fact carried out by a drunk soldier who accidentally set the building on fire. And we see that what happened is as it, as it was on fire and the fire got so hot, history records that the gold that was inside of the temple, it actually started to melt. And as it melted, it went between the cracks there that were, that the bricks were laid on. And after the fire was put out, General Titus was so upset that he had his soldiers tear down the temple brick by brick and there extract the gold from the bricks that had been there and to send it back to Rome. And that went on to fund various building projects and things that, are, that, are, that were there in the Roman Empire. But understand, for us Bible students, what this is is just uh, the prediction, the prophecy that Jesus lays down here in this sermon to his, in this conversation with his disciples of something that we see in history happened. It's an amazing thing to see. This is a prediction that Jesus makes that has absolutely come to pass and is so cool to note that. But for the context of our study, what we see that this prediction does for Jesus and his disciples is it prompts some questioning that the disciples have for Jesus, and logically so. I mean, you think about this, the logical pattern of thought, it makes sense the disciples would have a question for Jesus. They're here seeing him lay down, you know, conversations with the religious leaders of the day. They see him leaving the temple. They're like, hey, what's going on with Jesus, perhaps? And they're like, hey, look at the temple. It's amazing. This is some cool stuff. He's like, it's all going to fall down. They're like, uh, please explain this. <laughs> like, some, some more detail would be great. And so they ask him, hey, when is this going to happen? They ask him, logically so, in their minds, if the temple is being destroyed, then that must mean that something is going to be established. Something is going to change. There must be something new that is about to happen. And if you remember already with the teachings of Jesus to his disciples, he has let them know that something is going to happen. You'll remember just a few chapters back in Matthew 16 and 17 that he spoke to his disciples of the establishment of the church, how he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so they know that Jesus is walking differently, <clears throat> he's teaching differently, and that he's going to bring about something new. And so here at the news of the temple being destroyed, this grand structure that they see as the center of their religion and their culture, and he says it's all going to be torn down, they must be thinking, well, Jesus is talking about the establishment of his kingdom that we believe he's going to establish. And so they ask him there again, tell us, when will these things be? When's the temple going down? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Something's happening. All that we know is coming to an end. Jesus Tell us more. They ask this question here at the onset of our text. And they ask this question because of a prediction, a prophecy that Jesus makes. 
And their question is, again, perfectly logical. It's in line with their belief of who Jesus is, who they have come to believe that he is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. They believe that he is the one they are looking for. And so Jesus is going to answer their question. However, the answer that Jesus is going to give would have been something that they would not have expected. Because Jesus, what he's going to lay out for them is not necessarily what they want to hear in that moment. That in a short span of time that Jesus is going to rise to power and overthrow the Roman government. No, what he is about to share with them are events that are yet to happen. Yet to happen not only from their day, but also from our day as well. Jesus here is going to not just speak about the end of the age in their minds in recent, in like near future, but in future future and doesn't give them an actual timeline. He doesn't give them a definitive date of when the coming of the age, when the kingdom is going to be established. What he does instead is he gives them signs that are going to lend themselves to it. He gives them signs that are going to show when that time is coming. And it would have been something, again, that they wouldn't have expected, but yet that they were to take note of. In the same way that we, studying here, are to take note of as well. Because like I said, the things that Jesus describes here are not just the end of the age in in the disciples' mind, it's in the end of their life or within their lifetime, but they are events that we still have yet to see. They're events that we still have yet to experience, and Jesus lays them out for us. Now, Having said that, and to set the stage for what we're about to dive into, there's some clarification that needs to be made. And I want to say on the onset of this that tonight may not be the Bible study that you anticipated coming to listen to on a Wednesday night. Now, you are the Wednesday night crowd, so I know that you're here, you're serious about it, you're ready to study the Bible and get into it, but I'm going to let you know, tonight may seem a little bit more like Bible school than it does a Bible study, and that's okay. That's okay, because what we're going to dive in tonight is Jesus laying down facts that the rest of the Bible confirms that shows what the end of the age is going to look like, what it looks like at the end of the, at the, end of the age, at the end of time before Jesus returns physically to the earth. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to see Jesus lay down for us some eschatology, some eschatology or what you could call or what you should define as end-time prophecy. And so to help us with that, before we dive into what Jesus says and to give us some clarification, well, it does us well to look at what is known as the eschatological timeline. Again, this might feel like school. I'm not sorry about that. I just want to prepare you for that's what you're, you're going to hear tonight. If you'll notice there on the screen here in just a moment, there's going to be a timeline that's actually put up for us. And the reason I want to put this up is because before we dive into the text before us, we need to know exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so if we're studying the end of the age, if we're studying end-time prophecy that Jesus is teaching, well, it does us well to define some things about end times and about eschatology, specifically where we're at and where we are in relation to what Jesus is speaking to. And quite simply, if you look up there on the screen, where we're at currently is in the present church age. They're at the far left side of that timeline. And this present church age, understand, we see the start of in the Bible. We see it start in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, there at the day of Pentecost. Jesus has died, he has risen from the dead, and he has ascended to the Father. And he promised there in Acts 1.8 that as he told his disciples to wait there in Jerusalem, 
that the Holy Spirit was going to come. He was going to come and baptize them not too many days from there, and they would receive power to be his witnesses in the earth, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they waited all through chapter 1 of Acts. And then in chapter 2, we have Pentecost, where they are praying and seeking the Lord. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, comes and baptizes those followers of Jesus. And as they baptizes them, they begin to speak in tongues. They begin to speak, and the people around them hear of the gospel and hear of the good news of Jesus. And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up, preaches a sermon, and 3,000 are saved that day. It's this amazing thing that we see. And it's an amazing thing, and it is at that moment that the church, what we are still a part of today, started. It is when the church started. It's also, just a side note for you to put in your notes, it's also when the last days started. You'll remember from Joel chapter 2, how Joel prophesied of the reality that in the last days that, the, that God was going to pour out his spirit on his manservants and his maidservants. And it is, it is in those last days that we see that happen in Acts chapter 2. And so when are the last days? Well, they started in chapter 2 of Acts and we're still living in them right now, which is a great thing to remember so that we know to live for the Lord as if this could be our last day. But that's, again, a side note. That's for free. Back to the timeline. We're in the present church age, which is going to be ended very suddenly at what is known as the rapture of the church. And we see this event outlined in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 by the Apostle Paul. And what this is and how we believe it here at Calvary Chapel is this is going to be that catching up of, of believers, both dead and living in the air with Jesus, that is going to happen there at the end of the church age. And at the same time, starting as it ends the church age, is going to be starting what is known as the seven-year tribulation period that we see described for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Now, this tribulation period is going to be that event in which Jesus, in which the Lord is pouring out his judgments on a Christ-rejecting world. And this event of seven years is going to be divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. You can see that divided there. How we see it called the beginning of sorrows or birth pains, as Jesus is going to call it tonight. And then into the great tribulation, that which is divided by this desecration of the temple, an event that we will discuss tonight as Jesus does. And after this seven-year period of time, then comes the physical earthly return of Christ to the earth. And that event is recorded for us in Revelation chapter, chapter 20, and is going to be something Jesus speaks about tonight as well. And then after that comes the final judgment and then new, hell, new, new heaven and new earth and the eternal state, which you can see in Revelation 20 through 22. And I share this all with you tonight because of two clarifications that we need to know about this text. Two clarifications that we need to see and need to make note of as we study this tonight, that if you don't have them clarified, cause issues with the way you study this text and with the way that you study and interpret the rest of the Bible. Understand that the first clarification that we need to make tonight, that we understand from this timeline and we understand from the text, is that the Olivet Discourse, understand me, is not talking about the rapture, but it's talking about the physical return of Christ. The Olivet Discourse has to deal with the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation period. It does not, as it has been taught in times past, in multiple ways and, and facets, 
having to deal with the rapture of the church that marks the tribulation. Which means that the description of the events that we're going to see here tonight in the Olivet Discourse have to deal with that time, that seven-year period of time that, that the tribulation period is going on leading up to the return of Jesus and the return of his, uh, of his reign and rule to the earth or his, re- or his return that brings his rule and reign to the earth physically for the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And so that's the first clarification that we need to make. But along with that clarification is the reality that the Olivet Discourse is primarily geared towards Jews and not speaking of the church. It is speaking primarily to Jews and not to the church. This is a fact that we see here as Jesus is going to spill out and and say what he's saying. Now, please, as I say that, don't misunderstand and think that just because Jesus is speaking of predominantly to a, or predominantly to a Jewish audience, that it is our time to check out as we study this. We're not just studying this as Calvary Chapel Paris because chapter 24 comes before the end of the book and we got to get through it, so we're just going to do it. No, understand that we study it because there is still relevance to us as Bible students as we study this. The Bible still speaks. There is still much that we need to and can learn from this text as we study it. But we want to make sure we study it right. And we want to make sure that we're studying it correctly and with the right mindset as we see here what Jesus is saying. Because if we don't, then you come up with all kinds of crazy things. If you don't, then you can come up with all kinds of crazy interpretations of the biblical text here and elsewhere that have to deal with this same topic. And I say that you can because people have. There are myriads of of sects of Christianity, myriads of thought processes that are off base that if you adhere to them, they can get you in sticky situations when it comes to how you interpret and how you apply the word of God. And so it's so under so important that we understand what Jesus is saying and who he's talking to and what he is referencing so that we have the right mindset, the right interpretation, so as to apply it correctly. And so all of that to say, the Olivet Discourse is a sermon taught there to Jesus' disciples by Jesus. It is pertaining to events that will happen within the seven-year tribulation period leading up to the physical return of Christ and his establishment of the millennial kingdom as not only the Jewish Messiah, but also as the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And like I said, this is not, as, I, as we make these clarifications, this is not, and it's important to say this again, this is not something that excuses us from paying attention to what the Bible has to say tonight. This is not something that gives us an, uh, that gives us a, an out when it comes to seeing the truth here and just think, okay, well, we're just going to learn the theoretical and leave the application for other parts of the Bible. No, understand that what we study tonight, there is one interpretation for it. There is an audience contextually that Jesus is speaking to. But that doesn't mean that there's not application for us as the church as we study this text because the Bible, all of it, has application for its reader. The Bible has application for us that we need to pay attention to. And as we do so, understand that we will be and the world around us will be better for it as we follow Jesus, knowing more of what his word says. And so though it may seem like a lot, and it may not seem like something that maybe matters to you in your Gentile church age context, understand it absolutely does because it's in the word of God. 
In fact, just in this sermon right here, as we're going to get to next week, Jesus is going to speak of the reality that the, the heavens and the earth, they may pass away, but his word, it remains. It is relevant and so important, every bit of it, for us to read and to study so that we can apply it. And I know that you're here to do that. So praise the Lord. And so let's actually get into this, having laid a bit of a foundation, having clarified for us some things about the Olivet Discourse. Let's now jump in and see Jesus lay down what you could call the timeline of the end and see how we can learn more about it ourselves and know how to live in light of it. And so what we're going to see first is there in verses 4 through 14, really an, an overview of that entire seven-year tribulation period that Jesus shows us and gives us, gives us information about. Pick it with me in verse 4, where it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all of these things, they must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And all of these, they're the beginning of sorrows. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. They will betray one another, will hate one another. And then many false prophets, they will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end, well, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Seeing here this timeline of the end started out by Jesus here, we see first a, a, an overview of that entire seven-year period. Now, remembering that this is not pertaining to the lead-up of the rapture and to, it is written to a Jewish audience here, what Matthew records for us in, verse, in the verses we just read is an overview that has a, a, a dividing point between verses 8 and 9. In verses 4 through 8, looking there at the first half, we see there the, the reference to the first half of the tribulation, what is known as the birth pangs there in verse 8. And this refers to sufferings that, that Israel, along with much of the rest of the world, will be experiencing in the first three and a half years. And you notice that Jesus, he makes mention of, of the signs with reference to the end of the age that are coming. There's going to be those false messiahs, he points out, the threat of wars and widespread conflict and various natural catastrophes. Now, again, I reference that the tribulation period is shown to us in detail by the apostle John in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And we studied Revelation, if you'll remember, almost two years ago now as a fellowship, and those studies are online if you want to go back and see more in detail about what we're talking about. But Revelation chapter 6 is where we see the onset of the tribulation, and it begins with the seal judgments. In Revelation 6, 2, it speaks of uh, that first seal being broken, and there a rider on a white horse coming out of that seal and given authority there to rule and to reign over the earth. And this refers to this false prophet, this false Messiah that Jesus here is speaking of. This false Messiah elsewhere known as the Antichrist or the beast that is going to be given authority to rule there in the, in the time of the end, who's going to be given authority to rule over the earth. 
And then flowing on from there, Revelation 6, 4 says that this peace, that peace is taken from the earth. This is represented in a red horse who is there given authority to go and to wage war. In Revelation 6, verses 6 through 8, it speaks of famine and death represented in a black and a pale horse. And Jesus here is speaking of this. He's speaking of the reality that, hey, there in the last, even at the first of the last days, there is going to be this, this false Messiah that comes. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be death and pestilence. There's going to be these things that occur. However, he says that the end is not yet. And then he goes on, again, giving an overview of the second half. As Revelation 13 through 19 gives us insight into the second half of the tribulation period, so too here does Jesus show the ramping up of the persecution that will come to the Jewish people in the second half of the tribulation. It will be a time where people, as you can see and can imagine as you read the account of Revelation, that where they will betray one another, there will be lawlessness and the love of many will grow cold. And Jesus explains this here, giving an overview of that dark time in, in what is going to be future for the earth. And that will be the darkest time that you could ever imagine there on the face of the earth. And again, reading there and studying in Revelation, we saw that. We saw that extensively as we went through that. And Jesus overviews that here. He outlines, and he's about to go into greater detail as to the event that sparks the turning point of bad to worse within the, within the tribulation period. However, I want you to notice something that he did there in verse 13 and 14. Well, in verses 13 and 14, he has an exhortation and an encouragement for those that are going to be alive in that time. And again, to the disciples, he doesn't give their uh, any amount of time to when this is going to happen. They have no concept, understand, of the rapture. They have no understanding of, of the church. They have no understanding that that is going to come. All that Jesus seeks to tell them here is an exhortation first to endurance and then an encouragement of the gospel being shared in this time. And it's so important that Jesus shares that with them then, and so important that we see that he shared that with them then. In verse 13, he gives this exhortation to endurance. He says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And dealing with that time specifically, this is an indicator there that not only will salvation be available in that time, there are some who believe that once the rapture happens, the church is gone, that salvation is not available. I don't believe that. Because you see, Jesus gives so many, or, or John gives so many um, references in the book of Revelation to the gospel being presented, to the gospel being shared. And so salvation will absolutely be available, but endurance will also need to be presence. And Jesus here gives this endurance exhortation to the people, sharing of the reality that endurance is going to be needed to move to the end of the world, to move to the end of that age, because it's going to be a hard time for those that are seeking to live for the Lord's. But notice too that along with the endurance also comes an encouragement that he shares. Encouragement there in verse 14 saying, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then he says, the end will come. And again, this is another, this is another encouragement. Like, like I said, where, where it shows me as we see in John that the gospel, the truth of Jesus being the Savior and salvation being available even in that time, well, it's going to be there. 
We see that as you read the book of Revelation, there in the sealed 144,000, you see it there in the two anonymous witnesses to us. We don't know who they are. There's speculation, but we don't know who they are, that they're going to be sharing the word of God and sharing the gospel. There we also read in Revelation of the reality of an angel that's going to be flying around the world, sharing the gospel so that all will have an opportunity to hear and to see and to know the Lord loves them and still wants them even in that dark time. And Jesus shares this exhortation to endurance. He shares this encouragement of the gospel being preached, even in that dark time. And I believe that's so on purpose for the disciples in that day of not knowing when that day was going to be to realize that, hey, they needed to be ready to endure. They needed to be encouraged to know that God is still going to be working even when times are hard. They needed to hear it. And so too do we. So do we need to realize that even in this day that we live in, that is nowhere near, though sometimes we think that it is, it is nowhere near as dark as that day will be, that there is still a need for endurance as we live for the Lord. And we see those exhortations all through the New Testament. We see Paul call us to not grow weary in well-doing there in Galatians 6. We see the author of Hebrews calling us to run the race set before us with endurance, knowing that we're together, knowing that we're to cast aside all, all sin and all weight that holds us back. We are called to live and to endure till we're not here anymore. We're called to live and endure and to go for it with the Lord as we follow him in this world. Like the disciples, not knowing when we're not going to be here or when this end is going to be. It's such an important thing, but it's also such an encouragement to know that as we here are called to endure, so too are we encouraged that the Lord, he's still working. That he's still working and the gospel is being shared. The gospel is going out and the gospel is going to continue to do so all the way up until it's too late. And I'm encouraged by that. I'm challenged to be one who holds and endures the time that we live in and any time that we may live in past here. But I'm also encouraged to know that God is working and is still working and is going to be working until the end. It's such a good thing to see. And Jesus here speaks that to his disciples and so speaks it to us as we read here this evening. But then Jesus, what he does is we see Matthew records Jesus picking back up after this overview and this exhortation and encouragements. And he hones in now on this very specific event that is going to mark the turning point, again, of bad to worse there within the tribulation period. And so what he's going to show us in verse 15 is the midpoint event that sparks and starts the second half of the tribulation. Pick it with me there in verse 15 as we read through verse 28. Where he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let them understand. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world, until this time no, nor shall there ever be. And unless those days were shortened, then no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, then do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and will show great signs and wonders to deceive, and if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, don't go out. 
or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Understand that as Jesus speaks here, it's more clear to the reader that he speaks to a Jewish audience and to Jews, not the church, as well as to the timeline of, the, of being the tribulation, not a pre-rapture world. And Jesus, what he does is he mentions there Daniel and something that is known as the abomination of desolation. And he speaks there of Daniel having referenced this. And this is a reference back to the Old Testament minor prophet Daniel or major prophet Daniel, whose book we studied together early last year. And specifically, this is a reference to an event outlined by Daniel in chapters 11 and 12 of that book. You should go back and read it for reference. As Daniel discussed events that were future for him as he was a captive in Medo-Persia, but is also still future for us sitting here tonight. The event of the seven-year tribulation period he describes there, where midway, at the midway point, would be marked by the Antichrist, this ruler at that time, this one who is, who is referred to as the Antichrist or the beast, who is going to go into the temple and claim deity at some point, this midpoint of the tribulation. And he's going to do so by having this man known as the false prophet set up this image of the Antichrist there in the inner courts of the temple and demand worship to that image. And it is at this point that Jesus is speaking here of the, des the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. He says here, hey, at, at this point, speaking to his audience, it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to be done. It's time for you to flee. He says there at this point that the prophecy relayed by Daniel, it is there that Jesus says it is time when this happens, those who are literally in and see that, that they are to run, they are to flee. And we see that that is outlined in verses 16 through 20. He lays down some warnings about it. He's like, I hope that you're not you know, pregnant or nursing. I hope it's not in the wintertime because regardless of, the, of what's going on, he's like, get out. He's like, you need to go. You need to be aware of what's happening and you need to act accordingly. And Jesus outlines this there for them and tells them of this, of this reality that that is going to happen and is going to mark, again, this turning point of bad to worse there in the tribulation time. And he says there that if the days weren't shortened, it's going to be so bad that they weren't shortened. In other words, if there wasn't an end to it, that no one would survive. There would be no one that would live. And he outlines that in that time, there will be many who continue to say, hey, the Messiah is here, or the Messiah is there, or this is the Messiah. And he says, hey, don't believe that. He says, I'm telling you these things so that you aren't, you aren't deceived. And Jesus outlines that they aren't to believe these false, these false messiahs, nor are they to believe that the true Messiah is somewhere. He's like, hey, if they say I'm in the desert, don't go out there. If they say I'm in the inner courts or he's in there, he's like, don't go in. He says, understand, you will know when he returns. And he uses their imagery. He says, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of Son of Man be. He's like, hey, as you can see, lightning very clearly, you're going to know when the Son of Man's back. He says there, hey, where, where the eagles, where the carcass is, there the eagles are flying around. And he's like, in the same way that you see a flock of buzzards or eagles surrounding and flying over something that's dead, hey, guess what? That's going to be so evident, and it's going to be very evident that the Son of Man is back when he comes back, which brings us to where we end tonight with Jesus sharing of what the coming of the Son of Man will look like. Their original question there and what his return is going to look like. Pick up with me in verse 29 as we finish it out, where he says, immediately, 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, he's going to make it very clear. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Again, taking the word of God to be true, really in its plain sense, we see Jesus say immediately after the tribulation of those days, showing again that this is not dealing with this pre-rapture world, but dealing with the return of Christ. We see here this, what is paralleled in Revelation chapters, chapters 19 and 20 is shown here, where the natural course of this world and the universe are going to be vastly changed. At the coming of Jesus, it is going to be this very plain and simple thing for the people of the earth to notice, hey, something different is going on. And Jesus here speaks, he says, he will return on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Simply put, he's going to return with authority and everyone's going to know it. He's going to return with authority and power and the signs are going to be very clear. Jesus points this out and he says he will send forth his angels to collect those who have endured to the end of the tribulation. Those who have trusted in the Lord, those who were saved, those who are his are going to be brought to one central place to usher in the kingdom that Jesus brings. And we're going to see that outlined more in chapter 25, as Jesus is going to describe that event in more detail. And again, I say that we end there tonight because that's quite enough for all of our brains, I think, to absorb tonight. And again, I know and realize that tonight's not the Bible study that you perhaps thought you were coming to hear. It was more like Bible school than it was a study. But again, as we studied the book of Revelation, as we studied Daniel last, last year, we know that these things, though future to us, those seemingly far off, those seemingly, you know, just kind of out there, that they're in the Word of God. And so we as Christians, we as Bible believers, we as Bible students, we need to have these there in our hearts and minds. And we need to know them. And we need to know the things that may be hard for us to believe. We need to know things that maybe stretch our hearts and minds, not just for the theoretical, but also, again, as we're about to talk about, for the application. Because understand that though this seems like a lot of information that you're just taking down just to have, understand that there is much that we can take from this to apply to our lives and to live out. The first thing being, you know, if you are just wanting to take a couple notes as we end out tonight, the first thing that we see in this is, and I love it, is the heart of Jesus, the heart of God really reflecting how he wants to let us know what's ahead. You know, I love that about the Lord. I love the fact that Jesus didn't like save us and say, hey, I'll see you in heaven. Good luck. But the Lord saved us and said, hey, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Amen. But also, too, he's given us his word that is brutally honest with us. He's given us his word and his word contains that which is profitable for doctrine, for reaper, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What we read here tonight is God's kindness extended to us to let us know what's ahead in this world, to let us know what we may or may not see. I mean, I'm going to be in heaven because I believe in a pre-trib rapture. You might not, and that's fine. I'll correct you on the way up, but I'm not going to be here for this. But it's so good and kind for the Lord to show us and teach us this so that we know what's ahead. So that we know that, hey, even in this time that is not as dark as that time, that, hey, we are still called to endure. 
That we're still, still called to hold fast to the Lord and endure with him and know that, hey, he is with us and as well, he's still working. And that he wants to still continue to work. And that's an amazing thing. And Jesus in his kindness here shows, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant of what's ahead. I don't want you to be ignorant of what I'm doing. I want you to know. The second thing is that the followers of Jesus, who he, he, he wants to make aware of the future, well, this type of stuff gives us a, a responsibility to be mindful of those things. To be mindful of the fact that God, as he's told us this, that he wants us to use it for something. Not just to have it tucked away in our head, but to utilize it and to use it in our life. And what I fully believe, and we talked about this a lot as we studied the book of Revelation, as we even studied Daniel, if I remember correctly. I mean, I, I taught those studies, but that doesn't mean I remember them all. What these types of studies do, remembering and seeing what's ahead, is they prompt us to realize that people around us, People around us every single day, people in our families, people in our spheres of influence, well, they need to hear about this reality too. They need to hear about the reality of what's ahead and the reality of the fact that, hey, Jesus is working now. He'll be working then, but he's working now. And there is a work that he wants to do now in the lives of people. There's a work that he wants to do here in this day and age so that those that come after us or those that are with us now, should the Lord come back and get his church and those be left in this time, will know, hey, this is what's going on and I need the Lord. We have a responsibility that these types of messages, these types of texts, that they, they, they bring us and remind us of, of the reality of sharing Christ's love with those that are around us, always knowing what's ahead for those that reject Christ. And, you know, I need that reminder. I'll be honest with you. I need that reminder because I get used to my bubble here that I really like, my Wednesday, Sunday bubble of hanging out with you guys who love the Lord and love the Bible. And sometimes I, I forget that there are people out there who, who don't know about what's ahead. I do. I forget about the fact that there are people who don't know of the reality that, hey, as they live a life that rejects Christ, that there's going to be something for them in the end that is not favorable. Something for them in the end that I'm not going to experience, that a believer in Christ is not going to experience, and that is available for them. And as we see and know the truth, it brings to us a call and accountability to that call to share the truth of God's love for them. So that this right here is not what they walk through. So that this right here is not what perhaps those that come after them walk through. It is perhaps the conversation that we have spurred on by the knowledge of this that sets someone's life on a course of sharing the gospel with their family, with their coworkers. We have no idea how far our knowledge of this and our obedience to the Lord to share this and share the gospel in light of this, how far that goes. And my friends, that's what things like this tonight do. And next week, Jesus is going to exhort more to the application of knowing these things. I mean, he's going to exhort to watchfulness. He's going to exhort to mission. But we don't need to wait until next week to have that exhortation on our hearts and minds. We don't need to wait for next week to realize that, hey, what is written here is absolutely what's going to happen. And the church today is called the mission to share about that and to share about the love of the Lord that keeps us from that and has us with the Lord as we follow him in this world. And so my friends, tonight, as we end and look forward to next week and continuing in this, we have a call to the Lord and from the Lord. 
to know him and to follow him, to know that he's honest with us, not gonna lie to us about what's ahead. I'm so thankful for that. He prepares us for everything. But also too, to take that and to utilize it and utilize our knowledge of it and the knowledge of the Lord loving us and sharing it with us and then share in turn with others around us. And I know that you, like me, have those in your life that don't know the Lord. Whether they care to know the Lord or maybe they care little about knowing the Lord, they don't know the Lord. And we have, because the Lord has put us in their life, whether in a family or in a friendship or just proximity of work or whatever it may be, or just daily life, if the Lord has put you in their life and put them in front of you, the Lord wants to use you in their life. That's a reality. That's a reality that I don't even remember. And I need to repent of often. Remembering that God wants to use me, even if I don't think that I'm of use. Hey, God wants to use me. And he wants to use you. And he wants to use what we learned tonight to spur us on to be used by him in the life of that person. And so tonight as we end, knowing that this is God's honesty and, and so good for us to be reminded of the fact that it brings in, into our lives an accountability and a call to mission. I want to end tonight as we've done before, and, and I always enjoy when we do this, taking a moment where you're at individually to think on that person or persons in your heart and mind and in your life and, and, and take this moment right now and let's pray for them. Let's pray for them individually. You don't have to say them out loud so the person next to you hears them. You can if you want to, but you're going to do that anyways in a moment. But just first, you pray for that person. Think about, of them by name. If you don't know their name, maybe you've seen them and you're just like, I think I need to talk to them about Jesus, but you don't know their name yet. Maybe just say, just think of their face. <laughs> you know, just say, hey, I know this person I've seen at the grocery store. I know this person that I've seen at the coffee shop and I need to talk to them about the Lord. I don't know their name yet, but I'm gonna find it out. Hey, pray for them right now. And let's pray for them individually. And then what I want us to do before we go our ways, whoever you're sitting by, and if you're not sitting by someone close enough, hey, just kind of do the shuffle and move over and say, hey, can I pray for you that you would have boldness to talk to that person you just prayed for? Can I pray for you that you would have boldness to go and to live on mission in their life and show them the love of Jesus and to share that with them? And so let's pray individually as we end tonight. And I want us to pray for one another that we'd be bold to go and share with that person. And then let's go into the mission field of the world and get ready to do just that.